0: Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, again with Charles Hodder. We're going to deal with dueling questions, so I have no idea what Charles is going to ask me, but I know that he's uh, the king of ID at ComC, and I'm a customer of ComC, so thank you, ComC, for providing Charles, but uh, thank you also, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, Tops Panini and Upper Deck, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, and Huggins and Scott Auctions. So, Charles, welcome to the show. I appreciate what you do
1: at ComC. You get first shot so your first question and welcome all to the right show. thanks for, uh, thanks for having me okay back in the days with beckett what was your criteria as to what you would list or would not list as a, a carter a set in uh
0: 1979 when the books came out i think there was less controversy there if you go back to 1979 you're really just talking about tops of the, of the current <laughs> manufacturers but if you're asking about 1984 and then later on with the other sports That was a little trickier. It was obvious that it was Thompson, Donruss, and Fleer in 84, but then you had score and upper deck. And in football, you had a whole bunch of others, basketball, the star company. From your ID dilemmas, we had those similar dilemmas in that what belongs. And so it was mainstream produced by a major manufacturer. Back in those days, it was really important that it would be available in packs and that it'd be accessible. And there's some overlap with whether it'd be qualified to be a rookie card. Some of that was uh, commingled in there. We had some real dilemmas. I know when the classic cards came out, they weren't uh, fully licensed in the sense of by the league and the players. And Panini deals with that now as well. But Mm -hmm. the collectors uh, speak. And in those days, it was more important. If you didn't have the full license, Pacific at one time had a Spanish-speaking license for baseball. So what's mainstream and what's not mainstream? I tried to be the judge With having the jury of the American public or the North American public. So I I didn't want to make a decision that would be out of step with what most people wanted. If somebody had to make the call, it was me. My turn. Okay. All right. One of the things that's going on in the industry right now is the backlog of stuff. And I want to just address the grading companies. How could you help the grading companies with their ID backlog? We know they have it. It's not just a grading backlog. Let's just say there's millions of cards at the grading companies waiting to be graded. And part of the bottleneck is the identification process. Any advice you would have for the grading companies, since you're dealing with that at ComC? are you aware of what they're doing? Or do you think there would be shortcuts if they brought you in to uh, streamline it or improve it, or if they outsourced
1: it to you? Your thoughts? (laughs) Uh, that that's, a, that's an interesting question. I actually never uh, considered that. I don't know if right now outsourcing it to us would be any quicker because as we're dealing with our own backlog, maybe if uh, when our, not if, but when our backlog starts to, to break down and get a little bit normal, my biggest advice would be just to, to make sure you have good resources to draw on. I don't know if this is all above my pay grade, but having some sort of licensing agreement to where they could access our catalog or something like that might be something that could help. But as far as, as outsourcing to us, that would definitely not speed things up at the moment. I <laughs> will definitely I, tell you
0: that. <laughs> no, I'm just saying you're building an expertise in that. The main expertise they have is grading, okay? mm-hmm. speaking for all of them. But they also have to have the expertise in the identification. But
1: it, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Part yeah I come across uh, mislabeled, misidentified cards there. Not a lot, but a- enough to, to the point where I don't feel quite as bad when I make a mistake. <laughs> Let's put it that way, but because we're all human. But I would say definitely if they had a licensing agreement with somebody with a, a good catalog to draw from with images. I'm not saying we're the only game in town, but we've got a pretty good image catalog uh, and uh, data catalog built up. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Your question, Charles? Uh, you almost touched on it, actually, in your answer to the last one. but this is more for today. What would define a rookie card for you today in the world of a hundred parallels, foreign soccer players with their foreign cards and everything getting popular with soccer? What is your definition of a rookie card?
0: Let me answer it a different way. My goal, if you go back to 36 years ago, my goal was to bring order out of the chaos in the hobby. That meant trying to find a defensible but narrow definition of a rookie card. That's what the hobby wanted. They wanted somebody to make the call and myself, our team, we, we made those calls. It's flipped. The mm-hmm. pendulum has swung to the other end. I don't think there's any desire to have a narrow definition of rookie card anymore. In fact, most people want the broadest definition. And so the rainbows, it's like what you guys do at Com C. If it was in the rookie year, they're going to try to call it a rookie card. Mm-hmm. And there's so many sets and so many uh, points of distribution. So I don't think people, I won't say they don't care, but If I were around now, I would feel like people want a broad definition of anything that was put out in that player's first year. Again, if it's an insert and and not a a base card, that's sort of not as good. But those differences are subtle now when just the idea of an insert uh, and a parallel is that water's muddied now. It's been muddied for years. So I, I appreciate the way you're doing it. And it's probably similar to what I would do.
1: Yeah, um, I, I agree. It is getting really diluted, and the specialness of a rookie card is, in my opinion, losing its uh, marvel.
0: Well, it's losing its individual marvel, but in the collective uh, aspect, it's hotter than it's ever been. Okay, yeah. my turn. Uh, right. In context of ComC, what's your biggest nightmare? <laughs> just, here's the context. I just got an email from Beckett Insurance, which mm-hmm. they're soliciting that, and they mentioned that they could insure your collection or your cards. Not, you'd be a commercial account, but ComC... They're saying that we would cover all these things, but if it's a flood or it's an earthquake or it's a hurricane, you may not be fully covered. And I just thought, I know when I was you know, involved at Beckon, we had lots of cards there. We had lots of other people's cards with grading. You've got lots of other people's cards there. You want to take good care of them. Is that your biggest nightmare, or is your biggest nightmare that something good or bad would happen to Tim, or that your workload would double or triple again in 2021? What keeps you up at night thinking about your job?
1: I would say, again, above my pay grade, the insurance. I know, you know, we've got pretty healthy insurance you need to and we don't really need to worry about hurricanes up here but earthquakes are definitely a factor here in washington but i know that tim has gone to great lengths to make sure that it's as safe as possible and as insured as possible that's always on the back of your mind going oh that would be awful but it's not something that keeps me up at night basically for me it's we're growing very quickly and because of what i do being is at the end of the line it requires more of a knowledge of cards it would be having a huge increase in business, much bigger than we had over this past year and not being able to get the manpower in order to deal with it because missing due dates is something that I take very personally and I try and get as much done and I hate leaving stuff that needs to get done. I'll put in a 12, 13, 14, 15 hour shift just to make sure I can get it done. So I think that just having a huge flood of of cards come in and not having the manpower to deal with it in a timely manner. Fair enough. Okay. All right. What do you attribute the new rising card popularity to, especially during this time of COVID?
0: People had nothing to gamble on. They had no sports to watch or bet on, no fantasy sports. They realized that that a lot of people, I'm not saying they're gambling addicts, but they like action. They like having some participation. And it turned out when there was nothing going on the field on the court, they still wanted that. I don't put a lot of credence in the stimulus check basket, because I think those weren't necessarily the people that were uh, fueling the growth, but people had time on their hands. And I I would hope it's no longer an underrated hobby, but Mm. gosh, it's a fabulous hobby. There's so many alternatives and uh, as evidence from COMC, think how many SKUs there are. Yet you have passionate collectors that are looking for just that one or two or three or a thousand cards for their favorite player, favorite team, or uh, finishing a set. So the passion's always been there but it came under a magnifying glass. And then you had some celebrities boost it, boost it. And that's great. I'm not amazed because I think the potential is always there, but it's a silver lining of COVID that we were a beneficiary of kind of a perfect storm. The next year I hope the gains are consolidated with the return of shows and uh, more normal involvement of local card shops But I'm hoping that the gains ComC made and others in 2020 are going to repeat it in 2021. That's what I'm hearing, Charles. So that's what I attribute it to. I think COVID was a catalyst. I think Mm -hmm. things were moving in that direction. Another thing that's notable, I think we're going to look back and see that it was noteworthy that the uh, fractional element came of age in 2020 for sports cards and sports memorabilia, because that's getting a lot of mainstream media attention. Cards sell for a million dollars, and they're not Honest Wagner, you know, or Mickey Mantle. That gets attention. Okay, uh, your turn. Okay, describe the ideal qualifications for people on your team, because people always say they want to work in the industry. It would seem like we're talking the grading companies. If you, maybe you can't grade cards, but I would think people with a certain background would really like to handle and see a lot of cards with the challenge of identifying them. So what would be the ideal person? You described your background, very eclectic, but but you're not typical, I'm not typical. Mm-hmm. What kind of background would you be looking for a star employee? Because there's a fair amount of overlap with what the grading companies are looking for too. So what would you be looking for in
1: an ideal teammate? If I were to go like pie in the sky has everything attributes for ID, passion for the, uh, the cards in the industry, An ability to retain knowledge and a thirst for new knowledge to be able to not only say, I'm into baseball and that's all I'm into, but to see something like, say, British tobacco cards from the turn of the century that they were unfamiliar with and being like, oh, those are cool. I really want to dig into that and figure that out. Willingness to learn a knack for research, to be able to not only just Google the 1969 Mets team issued card set, but to be able to look at a card that has nothing on it except for a player's name and to look at it and say, okay, I've got four players from this set. I'm going to look at their stats and see when they all played together and then narrow that down to maybe three or four years. And I'll be like, oh, look, there's a, a patch on his sleeve and go and research uniforms and say, okay, that patch was only used in 1969 and be able to say, that's it. So being able to research and think outside the box when researching, the ability to extrapolate data to be able to look at something, the brand new that came in, say it's an immaculate football and say, okay, I saw this in immaculate basketball. That's what this is in basketball. I can take that knowledge and and put it towards uh, figuring out what this football card is. And another thing is now with uh, so much international collecting going on, the ability to not, you don't have to learn languages to, but to be able to look for clues to let you tell the difference between Spanish, Italian, uh, French, and Portuguese, or be able to tell the difference between Korean and Japanese basically just a willingness uh, and a love to just uh, be surrounded in this uh, all the time uh, that's the main thing is, is the passion has to be there okay i thought you were going to say you just wanted to clone rich
0: Klein. <laughs> For yourself but and what i told rich uh, he said you can't expect these guys to know all the differences in all the languages and i said no just tell them
1: to study the prepositions <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's if awful, i if i see a, if i see a y by itself, I'm like, that's Spanish. Yeah, you, know? yeah, you bet. Yep. Okay, last, last question, Charles. In the long run, do you think that with as many parallels that are coming out, including stuff that's exclusive to different retailers and other companies and unannounced parallels and stuff, do you think that's oversaturating the hobby and could be bad in the long run? Or do you think with the fact that so many of them are limited, that it's ultimately a good thing?
0: It's obviously oversaturated. This is a hobby of oversaturation. If You're proof of that on your site. So the card companies, and and uh, it's not collusion, the card companies are giving collectors what they want if they want more cards of their, of their favorite players. So yeah, it is oversaturation. It's unclear to me whether that is going to be bad or good in the long term, because it's mm-hmm. what people have asked for. Again, when these people are doing market cap of certain players, they want to look at the market cap of a certain card in a certain condition, when really it ought to be the market cap for that player of all the cards in all the conditions. And is there enough money in the world to, to buy all that? And apparently there there is right now. So that's uh, that's a good thing. I, I really think the saturation is relative. There's nobody mm-hmm. trying to get all the cards, but they're trying to get interesting cards of their player. But last thing, as a former price guide guy, because I'm retired now, but e- it sounds like it get more and more complicated to do price guides when you get these saturation points and they just have so many. But actually, it gets easier to price one of ones the more there are. That was a huge dilemma for us back early on when there were just a few one-of-tens and one-of-ones, and it was hard to find comparables. Now, with oversaturation, you know what some of these one-of-ones would would go for because you've got comparables. And that's Mm -hmm. when I'm looking at pricing my stuff on ComC, I'm going to do that. So the saturation can play to the advantage of the collector that really wants to get a lot of cards of their favorite player. So. That's it, Charles. Great question. I appreciate your contributions to Com like I say, keep up the good work. Yes, uh, I had a blast. Thank movement. you. Thanks everybody. Great dueling questions with Charles Hodder. Be back again tomorrow with another episode. The
1: man in the house